Andrea Hairston is a novelist, essayist, playwright, and the artistic director of Chrysalis Theater. Her plays have been produced at Yale Rep, Rights and Reason, the Kennedy Center, Stage West, and on public radio and television. Since 1997, her plays produced by Chrysalis Theater have been science fiction plays, such as Soul Repairs, Lonely Stardust, Hummingwood Flying Backward, and Dispatches. In addition to being a novelist and a playwright, Hairston is the Lewis Wolf Kahn 1931 Professor of Theater and Afro-American Studies at Smith College. She's received the International Association of the Fantastic in the Arts Distinguished Scholarship Award for outstanding contributions to the criticism of the fantastic. Whatever we find out in astrobiology, of course, will reflect back on everything else we know and will, uh, and it will change our relationship to everything else that we know. And so we should be engaged in that. Professor Hairston was at CTI this past semester for a symposium on astrobiology and society, bringing her own expertise on the literary imagination into the discussion. What follows is a podcast conversation I had with her at the end of that symposium. So Andrea Hairston is a professor of theater studies at Smith College, and uh, Professor Hairston is here with me. Thanks for joining me for the podcast and for being here at CTI for the past three days for a symposium here on astrobiology and society. So if you could just start by saying a bit about some what some of the conversations you've had here and what you got out of them. Uh, well, this has been actually amazing and wonderful, and it has completely distracted me from everything else. So um, one of the major topics um, that we dealt with, um, Carl mentioned that that astrobiology is a calling. Carl Pilcher. Oh, I'm sorry, Carl Pilcher, right. I should say everybody's full name, right. <laughs> um, Carl Pilcher mentioned that um, for him, uh, astrobiology is a calling and that you know he can point to moments in his life that led to it and then a realization that this is what he wanted to do and then from there on he you know uh, worked his way into all sorts of wonderful experiences and activities around space biology uh, management he began to assemble all of the necessary um, tools and crafts and bodies of knowledge that would enable him to do astrobiology. So I think my interest in astrobiology is because it pulls together so many different interests in my life, not unlike um, Carl, and that I feel like I have a calling to what I do. So I feel uh, as a, I write novels, I write plays, I direct and I teach, and all of those feel like callings um, because I, I feel that I, you know, why well, I, I quoted Carl Sagan today in my talk, dreams are maps. And I feel that I have a dream of how the world could be. And astrobiology is part of that. And it calls to me. And so I want to work for it. Um, so the idea of the potential of uh, life on, you know, extraterrestrial life on, on you know, planets or uh, asteroids or moons in our solar system, as well as exoplanets, life beyond our solar system, has captivated me my entire life. Um, so, uh, you know, probably you've heard this story before, but as a young person, I watched Star Trek. And I'm a, an old lady, so I watched the original in 1966 with my entire family. And it was a very um, inspiring show. It, it represented a, a sense of the future um, that I <clears throat> really wanted to believe in. And so 
Um, I studied physics, I studied math, I thought I was going to be a physicist. I was also really interested in Einstein, um, and I had a whole range of, of um, things that interested me. I loved biology, I liked chemistry, you notice I said liked. <laughs> I loved chemistry, I loved physics, I loved, uh, you know. Uh, but I, I, I was really engaged by all those things, but I was also very much engaged by um, literature. Um, I played the piano, um, my mother made me do theater um, because she said you can't read books all the time. So we had to be well-rounded and she um, hadn't finished college, but she had an idea that I should study many languages, that I should be well-rounded, did, that I should get out of the sun. So she had this idea of what um, you know a young person needed in order to figure out how they could manifest best in the world. Um, so and part of that was you know we all watched Star Trek together and then we would discuss the issues afterward. Um, and you know we didn't really spend too much time on the science per se. Um, but my mother thought, well, if you like that, then you should read more on science. So of course, then I did do exactly that and um, so through high school I was very focused on becoming a physicist um, and then when I went to college I thought I was going to be a physicist as well so I continued to do physics and math and the second semester of my junior year which is really late I switched my majors to theater um, so and this um, <clears throat> this trajectory is very interesting because all the things that I like I could do in theater um, I could do the science I could do the literature I could do the music, I could do the storytelling, I could, you know, investigate whatever I wanted. So theater really um, uh, held all of those desires for me, you know, in a very dynamic way. So I could um, pose a problem, experiment with it, and then, you know, present something, which is a very scientific um, enterprise. And, and at the time, it was called experimental theater. Um, so it even has you know, it, it borrows from science, or some people argue science borrows from theater, but whatever. Theater is experiential. Um, so, but I still maintain my deep interest in um, physics, math. In fact, when I graduated from college, I was a math textbook editor um, because I could do writing and mathematics, which um, apparently at the time that was an unusual combination. But I was the first African American who was at. Houghton Mifflin um, in the <laughs> math department. So that was a very trying uh, experience. And this is the 70s in Boston. So it was also socially very difficult. There were, uh, integration was happening in schools. Um, there were, you know, violence, riots, all those great things in Boston, you know, the Athens of America. So um, I, I had these very early experiences that, you know, um, I was like, wow, you know, I really, want to do a certain kind of theater that gets to work with people all over the world. Um, so I, again, the languages, my mother making me take languages. So I ended up in, in um, Germany eventually, because um, I studied German in order to, um, you know, I read some plays and I went, I should read these in German. I had studied French and Latin and Spanish, but the plays weren't in those languages and I was very arrogant. I said, okay, well, then I'll learn German. Um, there's a saying in German, Deutsche Sprache, Schwere Sprache, which translates as German language, hard language. Um, and I had no idea of that and I was arrogant, um, so I started learning German and it was very hard. It was as hard as theater. Um, theater seemed to be harder than physics. Um, so, and I like hard things, so I was like, I am going to learn this language. Um, so then I end up um, in uh, 
you know, t I took German at Smith because I was a professor at Smith teaching theater and I could take whatever I want. So I took German and I basically got a German major while teaching, um, which was great. Um, and then eventually I ended up at the Universität Hamburg as a Professor, I guess professor, um, in the 90s. We're getting close to the sparrow. <laughs> um, so we're there, I'm there in the 90s, and I decide I'm going to write science fiction um, because all the things that I have done, um, you know, the languages, the, um, the sciences, the theater, all of that seems to come together in science fiction. Um, and so I uh, also I feel like an alien. I'm uh, in uh, Hamburg, North Germany, teaching, um, and uh, my Germany is Southern Germany, Bavaria. So my German family are Irish. Um, so I was in, you know, <laughs> with the Preussen, with the with the Prussians in North Germany, and they seemed really odd to me because I thought I knew Germans, right? Because I I've been there, I'm fluent, I got it. Um, so that was the experience that made me think, really, you know. Um, I, you, you don't have, what, what are you talking about? Like, where did that mindset come from? So I wanted to investigate my own um, cognitive biases. Uh, also, I was in Europe, I'm like, these are all white people, you know, like, and then no, they're like, not only are they Germans and Austrians and Italians, they are North Germans and, not only are they Southern Germans, there's there's like Oberbayern and Niederbayern. So it was a very wonderful experience um, to be an alien. In a, you know, um, in a, another culture that you thought you were fluent in. Um, and in fact, I taught my class in German. So, um, so I'm very fluent in the language and I can read and I can write. And I had written, a, you know, a, an interesting book with help. And, you know, so, um, you know, I can do everything in German. So, whoa, but I didn't really know everything at all. Um, so that led me to wanting to write science fiction and to think about, um, the experiences of, uh, you know, not knowing, knowing something, but not knowing everything and thinking you know a lot. <laughs> um, and actually maybe you do know a lot, but it's still not sufficient. So um, I eventually um, decided I can't do it as a play. It's too big, so I decided to write novels. And then that gets me on a whole new um, endeavor as an academic. I'd be, decide, okay, I'm going to write science fiction novels, which is very similar to saying, yeah, and I'll learn German. Um, so, you know, because plays and screenplays are not novels, those are distinct categories. So um, I'm like, okay, so I try to write, you know, and I know a lot about narrative, I know a lot about character, dialogue, I know a lot. Um, but again, it's it's like the German I know. So I um, finally, in, in like 1999, um, I, I think I, I went to Germany in 1995. So in 1999, I actually have some texts that I send out and I get accepted uh, in a uh, sort of boot camp for science fiction writers. It's called Clarion West. Um, and, you know, amazing people um, teach there, go there. So I think, oh, I got in, great. So I go and I meet Octavia Butler. She's one of my uh, instructors, along with Greg Bear and uh, Gordon Van Gelder. A whole range of really interesting people are there. Um, and, you know, and people like my work and critique it, and I feel that I grow and develop. And Gordon Van Gelder said, you should read The Sparrow. Uh, and I go, well, why? Well, this is what you're dealing with. So read The Sparrow. And this is in 1999, and I think The Sparrow came out like two years yeah. or so, two or three years before that. Um, so I go, okay, Gordon. He said, no, really, 
I, this is your book. You, you, because you are interested in all of these things. Um, you should read the Sparrow. So I read the Sparrow, and then I read the next book. <laughs> so I um, and Mary Doria Russell was here as one of the guests. Um, Had and you met her before today? I met her. Well, I well. I, my novel that I was working on there gets published. I write several other novels. I get awards for, I got award for the Mindscape one. And, and then I go to a, a convention called WISCON. Um, and the award that Mary won for the uh, Sparrow, the Tip Tree Award is given at this convention. So I'm there, you know, experiencing all that. And then later I will win that award for a novel that I wrote. So, um, so, um, so it's a wonderfully rich environment for supporting, uh, it, WISCON in particular, like there are academics and fans at the same con conference. So there's an academic track. You can do papers. Um, you can do a whole range of things that I normally do, as well as there are people who read books and just talk about them and have fun and dress up and do costumes, which I normally do as well. So that the whole thing, I was like, this is really funny. You know, all of the performative elements that I like about carnival or, you know, any kind of masquerading and people role playing. And I just went, oh, yeah, I know this. Um, <laughs> we do this a lot. I, I'm, you know, this is what I do. Um, and so it was very interesting to join the science fiction fan uh, convention community as a theater artist. Uh, because to me, they were like, wow, these are, this is great. Um, so, uh, but then I got asked to write on Octavia Butler. So I've written you know, several papers, and then I decided, well, you know, you could teach this. Now, I'm not um, trained, I'm a theater person, so I had to do research. I didn't even want to write on Octavia Butler because um, I feel like I do theater. Um, I'm a theater, I can write on plays and films, but you know, Butler. But the uh, editor, Justine uh, Labralistier, um, she just insisted, you're the person to write on her. You know all the stuff, and you can do the learning curve for the novel, um, because of, you know, a short story, which is a very different form than a film or a play. So I wrote a paper on um, Butler um, that eventually I get an award from the Association for, uh, uh, oh, what is it called, IAFA, the International Association for the Fantastic in the Arts, which is an academic um, association for the criticism and, and you know research on um, the fantastic in the arts. Um, so then I start writing a bunch of papers about. Uh, I try to write about films and plays. Every once in a while, people drag me into writing about um, novels or short stories. I do that kicking and screaming. I write them, but that's the same thing as being a uh, a scholar of them. Right. Um, so and I feel very comfortable. Uh, talking about narrative, talking about all kinds of questions, or even talking um, in an Africana studies, uh, you know, locating these pieces in culture. That I feel really good about. But literary criticism isn't really something I do. Um, it, you know, it's not what you actually train for in theater. But anyhow, so I, I had this whole journey where now, you know, I'm in the midst of um, the science fiction community and the science fiction community is thoroughly engaged in and talking about and writing about astrobiology. I mean it's you know half of the books yeah. are like not well about so that, yeah, yeah one you know so, right, one of the main topics mm -hmm. is um, what is the potential for life beyond this planet? Will you know what kind of life will we find? Will we colonize the the uh, 
solar system? You know, what are the possible, you know, do we have enough lifetime to get ourselves to other planets? You know, what will we encounter and how will it change how we think about ourselves? Um, so that then that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about now. Um, is that it, Even I was doing that before I had the term astrobiology. Um, so that it was a, definitely a, um, an interdisciplinary endeavor. It engaged all my stuff. Um, so uh, one of the things I did, um, NASA had, um, oh, I wish I could remember, maybe while I'm talking it'll come back to me, um, a, a retreat for writers um, in Wyoming, um, where we would do like a crash course in astronomy. Um, and uh, Mike Brotherton, uh, you know, a professor of astronomy there, hosts um, the writers. And so we come and there's like 10 writers and we go and we do astronomy and physics and, you know, we do spectral analysis. Now I, I was a physics major. So this was like recall rather than new. It was like, whoa, right. I remember that. <laughs> oh yes. Oh goodness gracious. Yes. The inverse law. Right. You know, so I was able to remember uh, things that I had studied, you know, 25, 30 years ago. So it was great. And we also got to do, um, point the, the telescope. Um, then, you know, since the, the light is not in the, the visible range, how are we going to colorize it? And, you know, we got to do really interesting things and we really tried to analyze like, well, how far away is this light and what did it pass through and really do, you know, some, you know, uh, modest experiments for us to get a sense of. And we talked about the Mars Rover, um, so it was a very, uh, and, and Mike is still doing this, and I'm on a list with all the people who've done it, and you know, and then there were. Um, yeah, it sounds like a great program. It's it's yeah. utterly great. So I yeah. did that in like 2000. I was on sabbatical, so it was 2008. Okay. Um, so that's eight years ago, and I made friends from that, yeah. and we stay in touch. Um, and they're you know writing whatever you know. These are all science fiction writers who yeah. are. Um, Many of them write hard science fiction. I don't necessarily write hard science fiction. Uh, I put my hands up in quotes because I don't know that I agree with the definitions, but mm -hmm. it's called hard science fiction where they really try to, um, you know, like, let's not travel faster than the speed of light. Unless you're Carl Sagan and you, you do hand-waving around uh, some, you know, like black hole-like object that you can, that some superior civilization has figured out how to use. Um, so... Um, but anyhow, a lot of them, you know, so they're asking questions. And so one of the things we can do on our listserv is say, look, I want to have a planet and it's going around something this big. And what would be the, you know, tidal effects of, you know, we ask those questions. Even if it ultimately doesn't go in the book, you 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 kind of want to know. Like, like you know, it's like, almost. yeah, yeah. You, yeah. you know, I, and you don't, I mean, you know, depends on what you're writing about, how much of the technical material you put in, but you want to know what's possible or what's plausible or what, you know, what could go wrong or, you know, or um, why is this difficult? Um, so um, that Launchpad, see, I knew if I taught, it's called Launchpad. So um, I participated in that in like 2008. So again, I'm, I, you know, at that point, I don't have astrobiology as a term. I, I don't think I really had it as a term until uh, like two years ago. So, but I was already doing it. Yeah. I was already without doing the it word. Yeah. without the word. Yeah. Um, so that was very exciting. Um, Launchpad, um, and so I've participated in various um, endeavors, and then I, I, you know, teach classes. So I teach a course called the Magic If, 
uh, and it's speculative theater and film. And so we read plays um, and we look at the major questions that come up in those plays and we look at films and do the same thing and we do a combination. Because um, film is very central to science fiction. And one of the big questions is what, what, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be alien? What is life? Um, and not so much as a definitional Thing. We're not really, you know, we, at the first day I go, we're not doing definitions, but we're actually trying to understand what the writers are, are challenging us with. Um, and, you know, one of the films we watch is Contact, which is yeah. from the, the um, novel that Sagan wrote in the 80s, which I devoured. And, you know, and, and I couldn't teach the novel, right? So I had to wait <laughs> until, until the film came out so that I could teach it. So I, um, so that was one of, you know, and I, I do a, a, a lengthy presentation on Sagan and why he was doing what he was doing yeah. and what's going on. But before that, I, I participated in a Khan Institute. Khan Institute at Smith is uh, Interdisciplinary Studies. And um, we do a Galileo project. And that's, this is a project that I start. So it's a Galileo project. Um, and I bring together theater people, astronomers, mathematicians, history of science people, Italian scholars, music scholars, um, students and faculty. And we spend a year thinking about Galileo. And the final, the culmination of the year is uh, Star Messenger, which is a play by Paul Zimmet. Paul is part of it. He's a playwright. Um, he, uh, so we do a whole, you know, whole long symposium of, you know, like doing all the research Paul is doing. We're all doing all the same research. And we're having presentations like, who was Galileo? Uh, we look at Brecht's play, which um, Paul did not want to do that, you know, put on that play. Um, but, you know, he wanted to write his play, which was great. Um, we had a musician who, who worked with Paul who wrote music, and we talked about Galileo and music. We also looked through Galilean telescopes, so the history of science people had the students build the Galilean telescope. So we looked through that, and we went, really, he did all this with that? And then there's a telescope at Smith, so we looked through the, the, the modern, the contemporary telescope, and I'm like, okay, here I can see the moons and all that. And I go, okay, so maybe back then the air pollution was different, and you know, okay, a little bit, but I, we decide Galileo made a leap of imagination. Um, and one of the things that came up in, our research on Galileo is that he's a painter, a musician, a, a, you know, he, he's a writer, he's, you know, he's a Renaissance man. Um, but looking at the images, he decides that the moon is not um, a flat surface because he's a painter and the light and shadow doesn't work yeah. on a flat surface. So without being a painter, that, that insight would have been rather difficult. Yeah. But since he's a painter, he knows how a two-dimensional uh, representation of a three-dimensional image with light on it should look. So he's able to use his painterly skills and everyone says he's not that great a painter. And I'm like, who cares? <laughs> you know, and, you know, there are drawings, we saw them, you know, he's not Michelangelo, well, okay. Um, but, but having um, learned enough of that, he's able to use that. Also, he is an instrument builder. In addition to building telescopes, he also builds musical instruments. And some of his experiments on momentum and gravity have to do with balls rolling down, and 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 this is the history of science part. So we made them, you know, and so the balls roll down, and you know, if if they're going to go at different speeds or the same speed or what, you know, the tones will tell us because they pass something and they make a, 
sound so you can hear them all in harmony or they're out of harmony. You know, really elegant things. And all of these experiments are possible because he's interdisciplinary as a person. So he can use his instrument making capacity, his musical, like I will then, you know, make chords <laughs> so I can tell where, you know, because it's fast, mm -hmm. right? You know, so you don't, but, but if you hear the, and you know the music, right? You, you're good enough at music to go, oh, that was, they were at that all position mm -hmm. or they were at this, you know, so. Um, but that's like you, interdisciplinary as a person. I mean, yeah, you're you're already working across those boundaries, and you have for since you're since I was undergrad yeah. or before. Yeah, so do you that, ever have students who are trying to like trying to decide, and do you sort of because it would be hard to push them one way or the other? Because I'm at a liberal well arts institution, so okay, so it's mainly liberal arts. Yeah. It's liberal arts. Well, but by liberal arts, I mean we have an engineering Inclusive. program. Yeah. Uh, Smith is the the uh, a women's college, but yeah. it's the one women's college which was basically you know. Yeah liberal arts, yeah. and it has an engineering program. Uh, I, I went to Smith. I went to Smith because it had a serious, um, it was serious in science. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, because I wanted to do, by liberal arts, I mean everything. So I wanted to do physics and theater and yeah. take uh, poetry and, you know, learn French, yeah. you know, um, and that's part of the Smith experience. So this Galileo project was, you know, it's quintessential Smith. Uh, you know, because you want to have the Italian scholar tell you about what an impact Galileo had on Italian language. I had no, I mean, you know, I love Galileo. It was my idea to do this project. So we bring in the Italian scholar and we're like, oh my God, you know, because I don't speak Italian, so it's not a language I know. The impact that Galileo had on, as he's, you know, doing all this amazing, like reading the book of nature and then writing it down and being poetic, um, you know, you, you know, on the level of Shakespeare yeah. in terms of, yeah. you know, I'm like, whoa, okay, so that was great. And then we brought in some Arab scholars to, to look at mathematics. We brought in um, a whole range of theater people talking about how to like, okay, how are we going to get this on stage? You know, because we wanted to actually give people the, 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 like the impression that we were getting a Galileo and then religion. So this yeah. is again, astrobiology in yeah. this particular weekend. Um, you know, Galileo struggle. I mean, Galileo is a theist. He believes yeah. in God. Um, but, you know, he he gets in trouble with his interpretation of celestial movements. Um, and like, oh, it's not what we said. So that was a core um, um, part of our discussion, the theology and how Galileo was trying to work with it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the Pope was a mathematician, so there's a famous scene yeah. in, in the Brecht play where when the Pope doesn't have on the Pope robes, the Pope is happy to believe the math. Mm -hmm. Since the Pope puts on the Pope robes, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, I don't know. So, and I think Brecht is playing with, depending on which, you know, it's the same set of things, but now I have to interpret it this way because I'm in this role and I'm in this context. Whereas over here, I, I totally agree with you. Um, so just show them the instruments. It's a very famous Brechtian scene, you know, that Galileo capitulates, right? Okay, don't torture, just show them, the, that'll be enough. Um, and I don't even know if that actually happened, but it's it's part of, the, I think, the point that Brecht is making. And, um, so Paul wanted to also investigate um, the religious the scientific, the social questions right. that, um, uh, so that I did, uh, that was 1999, so that's mm -hmm. the same time I'm trying to write science fiction, that's mm -hmm. a project that I started. So that, all of that is why um, I'm here yeah. <laughs> to this day. Well, you know, there are many other projects. I, I directed a play on Copernicus, 
Um, so I, I'm just very interested in the questions that um, have to do with belief and the cosmos, um, with um, how we order or organize ourselves in the universe. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I talked about here is I talked about Native American um, cosmologies. Um, so I, I talked about star uh, woman, sky woman, sorry, sky woman. Um, and this is not a god, it's a person who falls through a hole in the sky and comes down and, and the animals um, are generous so that th this person doesn't die. And, and basically, um, the, the planet is all, it's just water. And it's because of the interaction of Sky Woman and the, uh, the animals that you get Earth. And Sky Woman brought seeds, so you get the plants. So that there's a, you know, a total connection between the sky, the water, the Earth. And, and Sky Woman was pregnant, and she makes the people. So in that sense, like a god, but not, you know, this is a fragile god who, if the geese hadn't caught her, she would have died. And if they hadn't, um, uh, you know, they had to dive down to the bottom of the lake to find the mud, and the best divers of the animals couldn't do it, and finally Muskrat does it, um, but Muskrat dies. Grab, you know, because it's too deep and, and suffocates, but, but grabbed it in its hand and floats to the surface. And that's how we get, you know, the earth. So the idea of sacrifice, of community, of all of those things are all connected to the sky, you know, and the relationship between sky, earth, water, animals, people, and plants is all part of the, and the meaning of that. And, I, and the meaning of that, yeah. and that that, that mm -hmm. constitutes the sacred. So yeah. for the Potawatomi or other tribes that also have this, that constitutes yeah. the sacred. The sacred is the connection and the interdependence of these elements. Not, nothing would happen, and nothing, nothing that we have as the earth would work without, um, you know, this connection and and for, you know so I, that's a story that I um, brought because I'm also very interested in in um, African and indigenous notions of you know people in space not not necessarily I mean God in space that's okay too but but people in space and what they mean to us or and by people for for uh, say the Potawatomi you know those are animal people plant people. So the notion of people is beings, you know, beings um, that are alive. You know? uh, so, you know, we use people a little differently, but, you know, you can hear people talk about the animal people yeah. and that you um, have to respect them. I mean, you might, they might die, you might eat them, a whole range of things. So it doesn't mean that you are a vegan, but it does mean you don't hunt them to extinction. You know, it's a respectful relationship, and you learn from them, and they learn from you, and you 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 make the world together. You know, that is a very uh, core belief that you make the world with the trees, not that the trees are here for you to chop down. I mean, you can chop them down, but you can't chop all of them down. That's not a good idea. No, I mean, literally, it's yeah, just like that's a. You've got to live in interdependence with yeah. them, and not right. So, and that has to do with Sky Woman. You know, to me, and Sky Woman is seen as that there were beings other places, and this one came to Earth, and but only through interdependence was it possible for Sky Woman to survive Earth. Um, so uh, that was a, a a story I told today. So um, that's one of my research interests. I'm trying to find all these different kinds of stories because I'm also a storyteller. So um, one of our big conversations was. Um, this three-day thing was so amazing, was narrative. 
Like, what is the, you know, we had a, a Mary Doria Russell and Carl Pilcher. Pilcher. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure how to say the name. So we have them, and they both have amazing narratives to offer us um, that are inspiring. Um, and so what does it mean to have a scientific narrative? Um, and one of the things that I love, we had a whole discussion about origins of life. Which story of the origin of life? You know, so here are some things. Um, uh, so we'll put them together and we'll make them a scientific narrative about what the origin of life is. And the, the more elegant, the more it, it contains all of these things, the more persuasive it is. But it could all be very elegant. It could even happen and still not produce life, right? Uh, so one of the thermal uh, vet, the thermal vent yeah. theory is a very elegant theory of life that it, it takes place at, um, you know, where there's heat and there's there's a right kind of ocean which has the right kind of chemicals and then there's rocks which have the right kind of chemicals yeah. um, and there is um, you know there's no oxygen yeah. so there's no like combustion going on or any of that or so that it's relatively stable and so life could you know evolve there could you know it's a speculative work you know so so it is like science fiction and I don't mean that like. No, no, but it is, it's using, it's speculative, and there's, theoretical, but it, it, it speculates on, we're not there, (laughs) we can't get there, but we can extrapolate from where Mm -hmm. we are, given what we know, and given what evidence we have, so extrapolation is important in literature and in science, Um, and, you know, that's one of the the, uh, wonderful points, but we are often seduced by very compelling, um, elegant narratives. And uh, that's in true in theater and film as in science, that, you know, actually that, that may or may not be true and we need more proof or whatever, you know. Um, but, but partly we want it to be true because it, it's so neat and it fits and it's great. So we talked about that, um, you know, with uh, scientific um, or, you know, with various narratives. Um, and I, I also talked about um, how we are, our, our minds are narrative. So that's how we organize things. So if you, I give you three objects that happen in sequence, we will try to find the connection whether or not there is one no, or not. I like that point you made. That, that was very interesting. Yeah. So we'll, find it, we'll create a narrative without we, knowing it. We will create a narrative. We're storytelling beings. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so there are yeah. famous experiments about yeah. this, but if you have a neutral face and you put ice cream, a neutral face, the neutral face was male, you put a female face, and then a gun, right? People will read the neutral face based on the second object. And, the, and they'll swear they look, you know, lusty Different. or that they love the ice cream or they want to shoot the gun. They, they, it's that's, all the same face. It's all the same yeah. face. So that's, you know, you know, so it's, it's juxtaposition more than, yeah, okay, so there's a face and a gun, but do we really know what's going on? No. Um, but we'll, we'll create that narrative. So narrative is, you know, seductive and compelling. So, um, one of the other things that we talked about, um, uh, we, we analyzed the the novel and, you know, Mary Dora Russell, Mary, oh, sorry, yeah. uh, the Sparrow and the Children of God, um, and um, we talked about um, evolution, um, you know, looking at uh, Darwinian evolution and the critiques of Darwinian evolution. Um, we talked about uh, cooperation and competition um, and 
you know, a range of questions that have to do um, with the narratives that are told as well as the experiment. So uh, in a sense, one thinks that science is discovery. You know, I have uh, objects, I discover them. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, literature, you make it up. Uh, so it was very interesting that Mary said, well, you know, you're making it up and you're creating the characters. And then the characters go, no, I wouldn't do that. And she and I were laughing because the, the character comes and says, you've written this, this, and this. So if you've written this, this, and this, I would not do that. And it's often the character telling you this. Yeah. I've had Pushes it. back against you. It, it says, I'm not doing that. And, yeah. and then suddenly you, you're, you're in a like, oh, I can't think, oh. And then you realize like, oh my God. Um, you know, and, and this isn't, you know, anecdotal in that, you know, yeah, okay. But every writer I know has yeah. the same story. I, can't, I don't I, I don't know writers who don't have the story. I, I feel it myself, and I have my character yelling at me, and I'm suddenly like, okay. And then I, I have to realize, what is, what am I, what, what is going on? I mean, I have a moment of cognitive dissonance, like, am I hearing voices? What's going on? Um, but most of what we think we don't know. So, you know, the unconscious is huge. And in the unconscious, I know it's like, or the cognitive stuff that we're doing is like, we know your book better than you, your consciousness, which is like, I am the operator here and I, I'm in control. And in fact, we're like sort of a symbiotic being yeah. with, with things going, no, no, no. Yeah. And it, but it seems like someone else. Yeah. It happens. That's how you know it's a real character. It's got, yes, it's got that's, a life of its own. When it's a real character, I can't control it. Yeah. I mean, literally, mm -hmm. that's my benchmark. And until I get it to the point that it's the character is telling the story, I don't feel like I'm totally in. I'm not. And this is something actors say, you know, when suddenly they can improv as a character. There's the rehearsal, 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 then I can improv as a character. And then that's the, the real divide. You know, the, oh, the, you know, and in, um, um, I didn't mention this, I, I wanted to, in uh, West African uh, religious traditions um, that later we call uh, voodoo. But vodun, the idea is you are ridden, you know, by a deity. And it's an honor to be ridden by the deity. So you are to make yourself available, and then you know particular deities uh, ride you know like everybody doesn't ride the same, you know like uh, Oshun doesn't ride everybody, but certain people get ridden by Oshun, male or female. And Oshun is female, um, so uh, but you are ridden by that, and that speaks <laughs> to the world. And when you see um, these uh, rituals, um, they remind me of theater, you know, um, like incredibly meditative, unbelievable theater, but very much like, like you know, the, the God comes down. Um, and so it is an honor to have that. So everyone wants it to happen. So people are trying to be available to the experience. Um, so, and you can, there are YouTube of these uh, performances so you can see yeah. them. And everyone who watches, I show my students, and they go, you know, believe it or not, they go, they believe. And then it happens because they believe. So you can actually see it where they can walk on coals, which, you know, people have done, you know, empirical studies and something happens and they can walk on coals. There are a few things that people can do. They can get poison through them. There are about three or four things that, that seemingly defy, um, uh, you know, our expectations, unless we consider how deep the, the cognitive unconscious, I don't, I don't know what else to call it, or some people would say the soul or the spirit, all of those things. But we have the capacity to actually do things that we don't consciously know we have the capacity to do and um, and that we get in touch with, you know, um, 
Carl Pilcher was saying at, at dinner, you know, um, uh, language is like 7% of what we're picking up. So like in our conversation, the people who don't see us don't get to see Andrea, who's probably pretty animated and yeah. moving yeah. her hands and, <laughs> you know, smiling, smiling yeah. sitting at the edge of her yeah. seat because yeah. she's so excited. Um, and then I have my costume on. So you're getting all that. And I'm looking at you exactly. thinking, wow, he's a biker. And my mind is actually, yeah. you know, I'm focused on our conversation, but I'm taking, you know, yeah. and then outside are cars passing by and there are little buds on the tree. <laughs> and there's all this, there's a, yeah. you you know, millions of bits exactly. of data yeah. um, that I, I actually don't forget. I mean, you know, they, they can, you know, it's in there. I mean, it, you will erase it eventually or it, you know, dissolves if you don't, um, like, you know, get a nerve a pattern to really sure. track it. But, you know, if someone were to ask me some of the, you know, did a green car go by, I can almost go, yes, even if I wasn't, quote, paying attention, end quote. Um, so um, it's amazing then what you can draw on as a scientist or an artist, because that's one of the, the aha moments when suddenly it seems out of nowhere. It's not really out of nowhere. You've trained your intuition, and, yeah. and that sounds counter, you know, train your intuition. Um, but you do. You have, you know, multiple experiences of something, and you know actually what you're looking for. And even while you're not looking for it, you're looking for it. Um, or when we're talking, we come up with an image of each other that we don't even know we're doing. That it stays below consciousness, but we engage it. For I mean, it's a heuristic. Like I will then decide. Oh, he's he's an athlete. <laughs> you know, yay! I like yes. bicyclists. Um, I'm a, I like I bike. He bikes. We must have something yeah. in common. I mean, we'll do things like that that are yeah. amazing. So, um, uh, you know, I think one of the things um, that we talked about too is that artists aren't really more intuitive than everybody else. That that's one of the things people think artists like intuition. No, actually, you train. You know, or a spontaneous intuition that suddenly they have. No, they spent a lot of time training themselves. Hours and hours. Hours and hours of practice so that yeah. they could then improv. So Ian McClellan can improv. Like, I I mean, it's amazing. Oh, he can pick up, a, uh, you know, something and seemingly he has talent and he can read it like he believes it and he becomes that character. But he has spent his entire life doing that. And even if he were good at it at the beginning... Um, you know, there's, yeah, there, you know, you might have a tendency toward it, but if you don't train, yeah. you can't do it. You, you know? Yeah, that's one of the things I've learned this year. Both science, scientists in the lab, they have a kind of craft, but yes. actors, humanists, writers also have a craft. I mean, right. Both of them are a, a set of tools and practices that yeah, they learn to do. And you need to do yeah. what I call rehearsal. Yeah. Rehearsal is essential. Whatever your definition of rehearsal is for you, you must do it. And then you are um, what jazz artists say. You have to practice over and over and over again so you can be ready for the, for the spontaneous uh, moment. So you literally are like practicing the same thing over and over and again so that you cannot do it. Yeah. I mean, it's like it seems like a contradiction, but it allows you a clarity, a speed, um, and a sensibility to find something new. To make a new, um, I will now connect this with this thing over here. Because I've been watching the cars for a long time and suddenly I realized there was only one green car. Why was there only one green car? And literally there hasn't been another yeah. <laughs> green car. Pretty much, you know, so then I think, are there more green cars? You know, Then I can ask a bunch of questions because something sticks out and I don't know why it stuck out necessarily. And so for me, astrobiology is about being ready for the new moment. Um, so it's about the dreams or maps thing of Carl Sagan. It's about um, pulling together all that we know so that we might know more. 
And then whatever we find out in astrobiology, of course, will reflect back on everything else we know. And, we'll, uh, and it will change our relationship to everything else that we know. And so we should be engaged in that. Um, and I, you know, I really feel that um, I wasn't planning to be at this uh, conference, but I sort of, you know, my unconscious was making all of these choices. Uh, this is what Carl um, Pilcher also said, that you, you, you're making choices because you do have an internal order. <laughs> and then you refine that order as you respond to your environment. And, you know, obviously I like evolution. So you go back and forth yeah. and you adjust and you change. And then here you are and you're ready. When uh, um, I got invited to the uh, Kluge Center in Washington for the Bloomberg Dialogues, and that's where I met Robin. Um, we had a, an amazing um, time discussing these things uh, in Washington. Um, and so Robin invited me here because we had made a connection here. Thanks so much for being here these yeah. two days. It was wonderful to meet you and to have you on the podcast. I hope to engage with you in the future. Okay, great. Yes.